بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الله صلى الله عليه وسلم أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله يدخل الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات جنات تجري من تحتها الأنهار والذين كفروا يتمتعون ويأكلون كما تأكل الأنعام والنار مثلهم This ayah explains the fate of those who believe in Allah and do good deeds and compares it with the fate of those who disbelieve. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Indeed Allah will allow those who believe and do good deeds to enter the gardens underneath which rivers flow. So this is a direct result of belief in Allah and doing good deeds. So that this is the effect, the cause, and the effect is being allowed to enter gardens uh, where you can eat in comfort in bliss and in total security so the effect of iman good deeds is that you have everlasting security and the reason why we allah has mentioned the institution of defense is so that we have security here in this world also as a prelude to security in the next world that's how you will link this ayah with the previous ayat because the previous ayat discussed jihad and this ayah discusses jannah so the link is security those who believe and do not adulterate their iman with dhulm, injustice. For them, there is security, and they are the ones who are guided. So the point of iman is that you develop peace, security inside of you first, and that extends to your good deeds, which is also to create an environment of peace and security, and then that extends to the macro level, of uh, promoting peace and security throughout the globe and the result of that is peace and security in the other world that's how you link this to the idea of iman so here the question is why does allah say that he will allow those who have iman to live in jannah that's the question and the answer I just gave you, that the link is Iman itself. The reason is Iman itself. So Iman is a cause, and the effect of this cause is everlasting 
starting from here, this world, not just in the other world. But in this world, you have to earn the peace, and the other world will be the natural effect of what you earn here. So earning becomes now necessary, cusp becomes necessary in this world, and in the other world, Allah's follow through your cusp will help you get to your destination. And when you get to the Jannah, and many gardens, and you have life. And that's why the water is mentioned there. So you have uh, eternal life because you have eternal sources of water. And then the fruits and then everything else, the luxuries in Jannah, which gives you not just security, but also everlasting pleasure. Right. This is necessary to understand the next part of the ayah. As far as those who disbelieve, they have their pleasure here in this world. So those who disbelieve, they roam around and they graze, literally, and they eat and drink as cattle eat and drink. So they're given some comfort here in this world but they are deprived of any comfort and security. In the other world, the fire is much uh, more of a dwelling for them, uh, meaning that is what they have earned through their disbelief. So disbelief will give you temporary pleasure, perhaps, for some people, but it will give you eternal disbelief and eternal insecurity. Whereas Iman gives you uh, whatever it gives you in this world, but eventually it will give you eternal security and peace and comfort and luxury, etc. So when you compare the two, then one, the effect of one is everlasting and the effect of the other is also everlasting, except there is a period of pleasure that they enjoy here temporarily. Uh, in this world. So that's why in order to allow them to acquire and procure eternal security, we give them da'wah uh, towards Iman and Islam and so on. So that's the reason why we don't want anyone to be deprived of Jannah. We want people to gain Jannah. Okay. So the idea of Jihad is not that you want to uh, dispatch somebody into hell. That was not the Prophet's spirit. He didn't say to go and kill everybody. So he said that uh, uh, I'd rather you don't fight than you do fight. Mm, so that's uh, Don't hope to meet the enemy, he said. And what are you doing? He prepared a whole battalion of people going to fight him. And then he said, don't hope to meet them. That doesn't make too much sense. Meaning, it's long-term. What's the end goal? The end goal is to help people get into Jannah. The end goal is not to deprive people of Jannah. Right? Which is very unlike what the Muslim psyche is today. Even within the Muslim community, amongst Muslims themselves, they're quick to make takfir. I don't want you to go to Jannah. So I'm calling you a kafir. It's quite pathetic. 
totally antithetical to why the Prophet ﷺ is the last Nabi. He came to save all people from Jahannam. And here Muslims, they don't want Muslims to go to Jahannam. They want to deprive Muslims from entering. It's a very sick, pathologically stupid. Mm. Quran says about human beings and Muslims, also included in this discussion, that if you were to own the treasures of Allah's Rahmah, or more personally, the treasures of my Lord, Rahmati Rabbi, then you would have restricted them, fearing poverty. Then how does Allah have so much Rahmah and so much generosity? that he can forgive everybody and allow everybody to go into Jannah. Now, these Muslims who call themselves pious and pseudo-pious and, you know, kind of whack jobs, they call everybody a kafir. Like friends, it's the queer in our When the early fuqaha, Allah gave them Jannah and reward, they made it so difficult to call a person a kafir. Very difficult. That's why Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, to his great credit, devise the word wajib to show that one is now going to at least give you hope for Jannah and the other gives you no hope for Jannah. If you deny a fard, then an akhidah, then you're not a Muslim. If you deny a wajib, then an akhidah, you're still a Muslim, although a person of bid'ah. So the role of the faqih, the true faqih, is to help everybody commit less sin or knows it, and then help them enter Jannah. The role of Muslims today is to make sure no one gets into Jannah. Everybody is saying that they're all fasik, you're kafir, nobody's eligible for Jannah. So here, when you understand this ayah, that the purpose of helping people accept Islam is to help them get into Jannah. It's not about the secular life here. The secular life here is neither here or there. Everybody has problems, as I say. So the objective of Islam and Sharia and defense is to make sure everybody ends up in eternal bliss, which is Jannah. The purpose is not to dogmatize and to become so so zealous in your religion that you condemn everybody on the planet and nobody's going into Jannah. Meaning that, that that's not how the Sahaba thought. That's not how the Fuqaha thought. The, Abu Hanifa rahimullah, says that if I find 99 points in a person that tells me he's a kafir and one point that tells me he's a Muslim, I will say he's a Muslim. Very different from our approach today. There's no compassion left. There's no rahma. See, the word rahma comes in. That if you were to restrict, you would restrict Allah's, my Lord's rahma, and so on. So now this ayah, if you read the second part of the ayah, in of itself, you'll say, you know, what is the Quran saying? That those who disbelieve, then are cattle. The point is, meaning that you can do better than this. You have other faculties besides eating. Right? Did you know that uh, uh, eating is now an Olympic sport? 
Isn't that what this ayah is saying? If you compete and you eat the most, what they eat? Hot dogs? <laughs> if you eat the most hot dogs, you get a gold medal. Then this ayah is true. And those who disbelieve, they enjoy themselves and they graze and they eat like cattle. So what do they deserve? Meaning that you have other faculties as a human being that you can develop and you should develop. And if you refine those faculties, then you might get a sense of life, or what life is all about. If life is all about eating. Unfortunately, it's probably one of the few countries in the world where you die because of eating. In other countries, people die because they're hungry. It's not something good. We shouldn't be proud of, uh, don't even entertain the idea of watching people eating any hot dogs for gold medal. <laughs> that is a sick, right? It's a disease. So you, you, how, how can you promote a disease? And so on. So this ayah basically is saying that there's a cause, there's the effect. So in the cause-effect theory, Akhida uh, for us, that the cause is Iman, and the effect is going into gender. If you tie all of this together as a holistic program, then you'll understand that the institution of defense is merely to help people get into gender and saving them from the fire. That's the purpose. And if you have other ways to do that, then do that. Right? Other ways, which is now what we are doing, hopefully nowadays we should be doing, Find other ways to get people away from hell and uh, give them the chance at least to enter Jannah. This will be Allah's Rahmah. So, anyway, this is how it is. وَكَيِّمْ مِنْ قَرْيَةٍ هِيَ أَشَدُّ قُوَّةً مِنْ قَرْيَةِكَ الَّتِي أَخْرَجَتْكَ أَهْلَكْنَاهُمْ فَلَا نَعْصِرُهُمْ And there have been so many communities. Qarya means cities, literally. It could be a community more... I think accurately is a city that they have been because people then lived by cities, not by nations. That's why there are so many cities that are, were much more powerful than the city that uh, has now uh, displaced you and expelled you, meaning Makkah. Yeah. So, what did we do? Ah, look now, we destroyed them. And then there is no support for them left, meaning that the idea that human beings have power, authority, might, domination, etc., is not something that you need to worry about because these places, cities, civilizations have existed before you and they were much more powerful than the civilization you are now in at the moment and the one that drove you away from your hometown uh, they, they are weaker and, and less privileged uh, and so on so you don't have to worry about their might and power meaning that for Allah it is easy for you to bring for him to bring you back to your city so we destroyed them and they have no support and help now likewise Makkah uh, will not be destroyed but Makkah will not have any help uh, once they finish their campaign against the Prophet وسلم, so in one sense is a bashara of the Prophet وسلم, that he will be uh, going back to Makkah. Yeah. Yeah. 
That is it, the, the one who is on evidence and proof from his Lord, is he like the one whose actions are adorned, camouflaged, and adorned at the same time? And then, then they follow their passion and they follow their desires and their whims and their fancies. No. So we separate the two. One is someone who's on the haq, the truth, the eternal haq and the eternal truth. And the other one who is misguided because the devil camouflages the evil in the form of good. Okay, so now you have to be perceptive and you have to see the nuance in how the world is very deceptive. Uh, the world is a mirage and you should be able to see from a distance that it is a mirage. Uh, is not the real thing as you're traveling in the desert and you see a mirage and you think it's water when you get there there's nothing there and when you get there then you see another one so you go after that one and then when you get there there's nothing there and you go another one so it's a vicious cycle and so meaning that you Muhammad must appreciate that if people are uh, bewildered by the power and the temptation in the dunya and the world then you must show them the other side of the mirage, which is, it's an optical illusion. Uh, that's your job. And so the devil comes in different ways and forms. And his genius is to camouflage everything in such a way that they don't see the truth. And so I mean, it's a reflection, basically. That's your job, to help people understand the mirage of the, 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 the uh, kufr, and shirk and everything else, and whatever kufr and shirk gives birth to, you must show them it's false, it's not real, which is now your intellectual jihad. That's your intellectual jihad. You have to talk to people, campaign, have conversations, be part of the community, be part of the society. And so it is not easy. Unfortunately, people think that it is easier said than done. You can have a talk, conversation with people, have the spirit of jihad. And jihad means you're willing to sacrifice your life. So easier said than done. Right? Yeah. Meaning that if you don't have the ability or the desire to sacrifice your life, then you mustn't talk about promoting Islam intellectually either. Right? There's a mismatch. You can only do that if you're willing to struggle. How do you struggle? You struggle by learning. Right? So the word mushtahid has the same root as the word jihad. If you're not willing to sweat and burn midnight oil and perspire to learn, then don't say that you're promoting Islam. That's enough. Right? You're not strong enough to them. So that's why the mujtahid and the mujahid are coupled in one ayah at the end of Surah Tawbah, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that there has to be a group of people who stay behind when the warriors are fighting on the frontiers. So that when the warriors come back, these people who are now researching, studying, they can warn the warriors when they come back. Is not the kind of social uh, community service Muslims believe in today. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, the one who does the most community service willing to sacrifice his life 
in the battlefield, he needs training and warning when he comes back. What does that tell you? That Islam's emphasis on a very high level of learning now is perhaps more necessary than perhaps the military. More necessary. So the Sahaba, especially Omar radiallahu, whenever he dispatched a platoon, he made sure there was an alim with that platoon. He built Kufa so that it would be a hub for ulama as a garrison, that the ulama would be there and train and discipline the warriors and discipline the soldiers. You have that here. Something called West Point in this country. What does it do? Yeah, war colleges in this country. What, what, what do the war colleges do? Well, it's academic, right? You're not actually fighting there in West Point, are you? It's academic. So Muslims must realize that the, the, the amount of effort they need to put into learning has to be in ijtihad, has to be the same amount of passion and uh, dedication they put there in the battlefield. Then you're on par. So the intellectual jihad is reserved for those who know. It's not for those who don't know. What is the context? Okay, you have this kind of culture and context in there. Everybody likes music and everyone likes it this way that you pitch to them. Everybody likes this way. And if you don't pitch this way, they won't listen. So what the heck is that? What are you pitching? You're pitching something which is real against something which is a camouflage and a mirage. So you want us to promote the mirage? No, we're not doing that. We're going to promote the haq, the real deal. Now, the way you talk and the way you approach, that that can be definitely consistent with Muslim ethics and Islamic civilizational values, but you can't disturb and destroy the content. And so on. So here in this ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is informing the Prophet that those who are deceived by the glitter of the dunya, you must not worry about why they are deceived. You must worry about how to approach them with the truth, without the deception. So that requires some intellectual discourse. It also requires passion. If you're not passionate, meaning there, there is room for an ivory tower in Islam, that's what I'm saying. Ivory Tower is very important where you develop scholars and scholarship. This whole country here is on the back of scholarship. It's not in a vacuum. You think they get to where they got to because they don't have scholars? No, they control scholarship in the world, in the dunya. Whatever they say goes. That's where the power is. So what I'm saying is that Islam's emphasis in the whole program for the Muslim Ummah is that you need everything, not just one thing. So as, as mashallah, we have so many groups, organizations offering community service at a good level. Mashallah, may Allah accept their efforts. But you also need to realize the need for scholarship, which is independent of the community service. They can't be mixed. Huh? So here the alim stays home. And learns. So that they learn and understand the deen. And this one who's doing community service is there. 
they have to work with each other. They complement each other. So that's the formula for success in any Muslim country, never mind non-Muslim country. See, in the non-Muslim country, if the social workers are divorced, uh, truncated, in fact, from the scholars, then that formula will have no barakah. They need to be together. They need advice. They need to make sure is Sharia compliant, what they're doing. If you offer community service and social service, but it's not Sharia compliant, then there's no barakah. That's where you need the alim to come and tell you, no, not this way, this way. Right? So you need both, not just one. They're not ex exclusive, and they must include each other in the conversation, which to a certain degree does occur here and there, but it's not a, it's not as a strategy. It should be very strategic, and so on. They follow their desires and they follow their temptations and so on. So the proof here is in the pudding. If any organization goes after temptations and desires that are un-Islamic, then that is not an Islamic organization. That's the proof. Here, the non-Muslims, they can't control their desires because they have no need to. They don't see an akhirah. They don't believe in the Akhirah, and that kind of prevents them from seeing the reality of this world. If you have a sense of the Akhirah, then you'll extend your idea of life to another dimension. But if you now totally cut off that dimension, you're only going to think in the sphere that you believe in, which is this world, time and space. So that is an incomplete understanding of reality. So the Quran is saying to the Prophet, when you understand the complete reality of this world and Jannah, then you will say Jannah is the place where you should be and Jannah is what you should strive for, along with peace, security in this world also. So it becomes an extension of the peace and security of Jannah this way. Mm. وَأَنْهَارٌ مِنْ لَبَنٍ لَمْ يَتَغَيِّرْ طَعْمُهُ وَأَنْهَارٌ مِنْ خَمْرٍ لَذَّةٍ لِلشَّارِبِينَ وَأَنْهَارٌ مِنْ عَسَلٍ مُصَفَّةٍ وَلَوْ فِيهَا مِنْ كُلِّ الثَّمَرَاتِ وَمَغْفِرَةٌ مِنْ رَبِّهِمْ كَمَنْ هُوَ خَالِدٌ فِي النَّارِ وَسُقُومًا حَمِيمًا فَقَطَّعَ أَمْعَاءَهُمْ There's a long discussion in this ayah. Allah subhanahu wa says that the parable, uh, of the Jannah which has been promised to those who fear Allah, to the Muttaqoon, those who are pious. Okay, what is the example of that Jannah? So this is a specific Jannah for those who have Taqwa and they're allowed. So the Jannah has ranks also. The ulama say there are eight types of Jannah mentioned, mostly in the Quran. So this is one time. For those who have Taqwa, there's a Jannah. There's an abode there. What is the description of that? And then how is this description of this Jannah compared to the description of Jahannam? So there are two things here. One is what's promised for the Muttaqul, and how does this compare to what's promised for those who disbelieve and their fate? So there two or three comparisons there. 
So those who have taqwa, they are promised a jannah which has the following features. Anharum mimma'in ghayriyasim. Meaning that there are rivers in there which are not polluted and they are not adulterated. Water that is not polluted and not adulterated. So that this word asin has all of those meanings in it. So then first of all that you have a river and then you have many rivers and you have a river in which the water is always fresh, always uh, to your delight. Uh, so water obviously is source of life. So in Jannah, you have a source of life, but the source of life gives you eternal life, not any type of life. Once you drink that water, as you know, from the Holy Gothar, Allah give us that from the Holy Gothar, inshallah, then you'll never be thirsty. But when you get into Jannah after that, then you will not need anything else to sustain yourself other than whatever is there in this water. Jannat al-Tajreem in al-Nahar mentioned the previous ayah. So this type of water is reserved for those who have taqwa and so on. And there are rivers there that flow with milk that cannot be corrupted and the taste will always be there. It will always be sweet. Yeah. There are rivers there of wine, which is going to be pleasant, enjoyable, and delicious to those who drink it. There will be rivers there from uh, honey uh, that will be pure, pure honey, musafa, very refined honey. They also have, also have different types of fruits. And on top of that, it will be under the umbrella of maghfirah, forgiveness from their Lord. So these are four types of rivers that we have. So maybe a little summary on this. So here we have that drinks. One is what we call the mashrubat, drinks. And the other is what we call makulat, food, and that which you eat. So both are mentioned here. So as far as the drinks, uh, we drink sometimes and the drink doesn't necessarily need to have taste, like water. Water has no taste, well, unless it's sweet from the mountains, it has some taste. And there are drinks that we drink for nourishment, like milk. Right? And there are drinks that we drink for pleasure, hopefully meaning wine, people drink wine for pleasure, not because of the taste, because it's utterly, utterly disgusting. <laughs> for those, hopefully none of you have drunk, uh, inshallah, but if you have drunk, it is bitter, it doesn't taste good, it's horrible, it's, uh, yeah, sometimes putrid, you want to vomit until it becomes an acquired taste. You have to acquire the bitter taste, the rotten taste, and the way that uh, wine is made and distilled, honestly, very ugly. So the drinks that you drink for pleasure, maybe something like a falula. And the drinks that you drink because of shifa and taste also. Honey is a shifa. It's a means of cure and it's very tasty, it's very sweet and so on. So these are some of the reasons why people drink. 
So water there, which is the source of all life, there will be there, but it will never go bad. You don't have to do anything with it. You don't need to treat it. You don't need any chemicals in it. You don't need to do anything with it. It's pure water. And the idea that there's a place out there uh, which has pure water in another dimension of life. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, that we have made everything living from water. So in Jannah, you need a source of life, which will be the water. But it will be very pleasant and very enjoyable and everlasting and so on. As far as the milk, the milk adds another component that uh, sometimes you need the fat that you enjoy. If you have a kebab with no fat in it, then you're very disappointed and angry. You're probably cursing the animal that the meat came from also. So you need fat in your food. So this is laban, but the fat doesn't go off. It doesn't become rotten. It doesn't smell and so on. So this is the beauty of laban. Laban is the source of knowledge, as you know, in the other world, in the mithal. And water is the source of iman, basically. So you having these parables. Okay. So what, what is, that's the beauty of the word mathal. In the beginning of the ayahs, mathal, this, this is the parable uh, where there's one reality and the other reality is now representing another reality. So water is representing iman. And then you have laban, which is knowledge. As you know, the Prophet Sassam drank milk when he went for miraj which represented fitra and knowledge, and so on. min Rivers of khamr. So in the khamr of Jannah, basically, as mentioned in Safat, that it will never give you a headache. You'll get a headache. There'll be no hangovers, right, from the wine that you drink in Jannah, and it will not give you unpleasant uh, disposition. Uh, so it will make you very lively and it will be delicious. Whereas the wine in the dunya is not delicious. It's very bitter and so on. But this wine now represents your ishq, your muhabba for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As the Sufis use the example, metaphor of wine all the time in their poetry especially. So wine is about ishq, love, that you will fall in love with Jannah and you will fall in love with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and as a result of that love, you will be drinking the wine which will be delicious, basically. Um, and then there's now the idea of uh, uh, meeting your destiny, which is represented in honey. Honey means wasool in the other world. So, so now, honey, that has to be absolutely pure and adulterated. And the honey of the dunya will have these bits and pieces, you know, of the honeycomb in it, bits and pieces of everything else that comes into it until you process it and so on. But in the akhirah, in Jannah, it will be pure to begin with. And so you can just sit back just for a few moments and imagine this spectacle. Who can actually think of such a spectacle? Never is, is even imaginary spectacle. They have gardens in the garden. They have these rivers, all these rivers of water, and honey, and milk, uh, and wine. 
Just sit back and think about it. Allah is asking, think about it. Mathal. Mathal is for atibar. It's for thinking, it's for comparing, uh, understanding. So if you just think about it, you'd want to go there. Right? But if you don't take the time to think about it, you won't create the desire to go there because you don't imagine it. And that's why you have to contemplate on the ayat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. as the Quran calls it. Do they not make tadabbur of the Quran? Think. Allah is saying, what is this spectacle? What is this picture Allah is painting in our minds that we have a yearning to be there? And so on. Right, we have a place in the dunya called paradise, right? Where it snows when it's not supposed to snow. There are volcanoes everywhere. And there's a lot of drugs there. And unfortunately, sometimes there are tsunamis there too. But you call it paradise uh, because of the beautiful greenery and the you know, topography and the climate and all of that. It's kind of a limited understanding of paradise. But when this description is in front of you, then you must sit down and think, imagine this. Don't let it just run by you. Okay, I've understood. No, you haven't. You have to create the yearning to be in a place where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to provide you through his fadl with all these uh, luxuries, all these settings, all these props that you can have in front of you if you have iman and amal salih, inshallah. So that's as mashrubat, those things that we drink. Um, and then second, the ma'kulat, those things that we eat. So in Jannah, you're not eating out of hunger. There's no hunger there in Jannah. There's no thirst there in Jannah. You're only eating out of pleasure. The only reason you eat in Jannah is for pure pleasure. And uh, this goes to perhaps those of you who are into diets. The Allah mentions fruits much more than anything else. The food of the people of Jannah is primarily fruit. Not your kebabs. Kebabs there as a secondary item, as a side. Right? Meat, fish, roti, those are secondary items. The primary item is fruit. When Adam and Hawa, alayhim salam, lived in Jannah, they were eating fruit. Right? Nothing else. The fruits came with them from Jannah. The fruits you have in the dunya, they came from Jannah with Adam and Hawa. I mean, that's our belief, that's our khidah. There's no silly thing called evolution. <laughs> we don't believe in that stuff. It came from Adam and Hawa. They brought down the fruits from Jannah. So the meal of the people of Jannah is primarily fruit, which you eat as what? A dessert. Okay. Initially, the word dessert came from the Spanish Muslims who would serve you fruit before you had the meal. Right. That was their diet. They would eat fruit before the meal. Right. It's kind of changed now. Now you eat the uh, dessert after the meal, which is wrong. And number two, more importantly, you eat the wrong dessert. <laughs> you don't eat the right dessert. And that's why you have the problems you have, unfortunately. Uh, everybody, everybody included. So Allah says, For them, they will have every type of fruit. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will provide for you in Jannah as a pleasure.
when you take one bite, the second bite will be more delicious than the first bite. So even there, the fruit is creative. Because in the place of creation, everything's creative. So by design, every fruit will create another taste on the second bite. It won't be the same taste, it'll be a better taste because you're, you're traversing from one state to another, from one hand to another, you're moving forward, uh, and so on. And on top of that, the umbrella uh, under which they live is the absolute forgiveness from their Lord. Allah will forgive them absolutely, and they will never leave that shade of Allah's forgiveness, and that is now the setting of Jannah that you have sit down, think about it, contemplate about it. Uh, you'll develop, as I said, a yearning to be there. That parable of the people who are promised Jannah uh, is like this one of the people of Jahannam. Like the one who is going to live forever in the fire. Which is not a pleasant place, and there's nothing you can do. So the fire will make sure you cannot create anything. The fire will take away all your abilities of thinking, of creating, of engaging. It will just deprive you of any activity except pain. Finnar. That's how you understand the sifa of the nar, the sifa of the fire. There. Uh, and they will be made to drink uh, very, very hot fluid, which is water, boiling water. Uh, now, as the water is the source of life, the people of Jahannam will also need to drink, and they'll be drinking water, but not the water of Jannah, the water of Jahannam. So that, that theory is consistent, that there's water in Jannah and there's water in Jahannam. That's the source of life. The source of life in Jahannam is the source that gives you pain and punishment and so on. So then boiling hot water, scalding water, then what will happen? That it will shred their intestines and their entrails. Uh, that will just burn up their insides. So there is no uh, pleasure whatsoever in what they eat and what they drink. And there is no sustainability. There's no nourishment, it's all pain and punishment, and uh, so on. So now you have the two groups, those who earn security in Jannah and those who earn insecurity in Jahannam. Once you understand this parable, then you'll understand why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants Muslims, especially the Prophet sallallahu to remove kufr and sin so that humanity is saved from eternal doom. So it's the rahma. There is the rahma at the macro level, which needs to, which is uh, obviously assumed on the aqeedah that there's an akhirah. Kufr means that you don't believe there's an akhirah, and therefore you don't work towards an akhirah. When Muslims, unfortunately, start to think that their only business in life is to eat and drink like cattle eat and drink, then they're almost in the same room as the non-Muslim, the only savior is the Iman. That they have Iman, so by Iman, by virtue of Iman, they will be delivered and saved, inshallah. 
hopefully before they get to the fire. Yeah. But this is now an understanding of Surah Muhammad, uh, as it's called primarily. There's another name for Surah Muhammad, which is called Surah Al-Khital, the Surah of Fighting. <laughs> yeah, so don't mention this too loudly to people who say the Prophet Asim is a kind man, <laughs> destroys all your myths. And so he is Rasulullah. He's not just a man, he's Rasulullah. So you, you don't categorize him as a good husband, a genius statesman, a politician, a diplomat. Those are kind of bogus. That's misrepresenting the Prophet. You say he is a Rasulullah, period. That's it. Whatever he does, he does because he's the Rasulullah. So when he has to be stern, he is. When he has to tell people that you're wrong, he tells people you're wrong. And when he has to now tell people that they need to do this, this and that, he does that because he is the Rasul. Not because he's a nice man. The word nice is very secular. He's a nice man. He's a good boss. Until the boss fires you, then he's not good. Yeah. So we must understand that how we see Muhammad is his Rasul of Allah. So if Allah tells him you have to fight, then he fights. He doesn't fight because he's a bad man, nor does he fight because he's a good man. He fights because he's Rasulullah. He represents Allah, period. No other description can be attached to Rasulullah. That's how the Sahaba called him Rasulullah. No Sahabi called him Muhammad, except once or twice from a Bedouin Arab who didn't know the other of the Prophet No one called him Muhammad. Nobody addressed him as Muhammad. They all addressed him as Rasulullah. Sometimes Ya Nabiullah. Even that was occasional. So we see that the Prophet represents Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's will, eternal will, is that human beings come here and they struggle and they uh, create a path towards Jannah, which is their original home and their final destination, both. That's the idea of Islam, and that's the theory of Islam that is represented by Muhammad sallallahu as Rasulullah. Uh, we will be just continuing the tafsir for this year, so next week there's no tafsir session. The following week we may have a tafsir, just look at the Darqasim website for the announcements, uh, inshallah. But next week we will take a break, inshallah. Jazakumullah khair for coming. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help us all and allow us to enter Jannah through his fadl. Ameen ya rabbil alameen wa sallallahu ta'ala ala khayl khayl khayl. Muhammad wa alihi wa sahabihi wa rahmatika 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 wa r